Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. You hear that? That's the sound of another sale with Shopify, your go-to for selling everywhere, online, in-store, and even on social media. Shopify POS is like the central hub for your retail operation. From payments to inventory, it's all there. Got different gadgets? No worries. Shopify's hardware is adaptable, fitting in just how you do business. Start transforming your retail business with an incredible offer. A trial for just $1 per month at shopify.com slash Wondery. All lowercase. That's shopify.com slash Wondery. Take the leap and upgrade your point-of-sale solution with Shopify. Visit shopify.com slash Wondery and start your trial today. I heard today's story when I was 22, still a college kid. I'd stopped at a gas station on the outskirts of Memphis, on my way from D.C. to Houston, to visit a friend for spring break. I'd somehow managed to take a kind of scenic route through the far end of Tennessee. Wasn't intentional, but shit happens. Anyways, I went inside the station to pay for my tank, and while I was pulling out my wallet, I saw a yellowing flyer taped to the plexiglass divider by the register. And it was, I don't know, I guess haunting is about the best word I can think of. It had a photo of this smiling middle-aged bottle blonde and a polka dot blouse. She was holding up some kind of roast. In big lettering under her picture, it said, Missing. But it was the words below that freaked me out. Because someone had scribbled another message there telling all who beheld this piece of paper that Ms. Polka Dot Roast had met some vicious, ungodly fate. And there was one place identified in all capital letters to blame, Voodoo Village. When I looked up, the cashier was watching me with a knowing smile, like he knew what I was dying to ask. And even though I sure as hell didn't want to give him the satisfaction, I went ahead and asked it, what's Voodoo Village? The cashier's smirk grew, and I noticed a few things about him. First of all, his name tag, Rick. He also had a falcon tattoo on his clavicle, and a lot of intensity in that stare of his. Probably stood behind his plexiglass all day, waiting to tell tales to anyone who would listen. Which was lucky for me, because I wanted to hear all about Voodoo Village. Rick told me it was this compound at the end of a marshy cul-de-sac, a few miles down the road from where we were standing. It'd been there since the 40s when a God-fearing Mississippi man named Wash Harris and his family set up shop. Wash came to this place as an outsider, Rick said. He was a spiritual doctor who'd had a gift for healing since he was a boy. As an adult, he was deeply religious and drew divine inspiration from his African and Native American heritage and a smattering of other religions to boot. He and his family turned that land into some kind of shrine, full of religious monuments, sculptures, crosses. They dubbed it the St. Paul Spiritual Holy Temple. Nice name, right? Fittingly grand. But soon, 
strange occurrences plagued these marshy outskirts of Memphis. Pets went missing and were found strung up dead on trees. Residents fell into unexplainable contorting fits. Stories about ragdolls coming to life and running around town became commonplace. Worst of all, in every church across town, any statue or totem depicting the man Jesus Christ himself began to leak blood. Around 1961, a local paper came out with a story that had a culprit for these horrors, Wash Harris and his voodoo village. They were not people of the Lord. They were witch doctors, and they were feeding off the souls in this town. After the article, a mob of locals rushed the cul-de-sac to literally raise hell. But with a cul-de-sac, there's only one exit. Soon as this mob was on Wash's doorstep, a school bus rolled out of the woods and blocked the road behind him. Let me be clear. No one knows what happened to the men that night. They were never seen again, alive or dead. But folks who have been to the village in years since and have lived to talk about it have spoken about houses and crosses made of bones. At that point, Rick leaned back and asked if I had time to hear more. Because if I did, he'd like to tell me about an unlucky local loner named Jacob Henderson and how this satanic village, Wash Harris's voodoo church, swallowed young Jacob whole. You're listening to Run, Fool. I'm Rodney Barnes, and this is Episode 3, Voodoo Village. Look, Memphis is a big city, but some of its suburban outskirts feel like the damn boonies. So even though I'm telling you Rick's story takes place in Memphis, I want you to picture houses and a few shopping malls surrounded by woods and marshes. There's a school there, too, of course. That's where 15-year-old Jacob Henderson almost drowned in a toilet bowl one Friday afternoon. He'd been underwater for almost a minute, his lungs constricted, his chest burned. He couldn't see anything, not even the skid mark at the bottom of the toilet he knew was there. And just as he started to lose consciousness, someone yanked him up. Jacob sputtered, coughed, gasped, did all the things you do when you're trying to get some damn air in your lungs. A group of five or so boys were crammed up against the stall door, watching him. All big, burly kids. The kind of jockey, smarmy fuckers that seemed like stereotypical top dogs at any high school. And they were laughing at Jacob, telling him it was all in good fun. And see, Jacob stood there, shirt soaked, lungs still throbbed. But he nodded along in agreement because he was dying to impress these guys. This is a good place to stop. Because as Rick the cashier made sure to tell me before going on, there were a few things you needed to know about Jacob. He was an only child, and his family lived far out, almost over the Tennessee border into Mississippi. Rick knew the area. He'd actually lived down the road from Jacob for a time. So Rick also knew firsthand that growing up, this kid had never had a neighborhood crew, a best friend, a sibling. Then he got to high school, and realized he was about a foot shorter than everyone else, even the girls. 
Rick ventured a guess that Jacob had always felt like an outsider. It's probably why, shortly before that incident with the toilet bowl, Jacob took a leap of faith and joined the football team. He was hoping to feel included in something, even though he was, well, terrible at football. Too small, too slow, the guys didn't let him forget it. They told him just because he joined the team didn't mean he joined the team. He had to prove himself. It'd been weeks of hazing. You know, the kind of dumbass kid stuff like streaking across public places, eating the gnarliest concoctions of food you can imagine, washing his teammates' cars, and now, yes, getting his damn head shoved in a commode. Why did Jacob go along with it? Easy. Because he needed a tribe. And when he turned to this coveted crew, soaked in excrement water with his lungs on fire, he would have been game with just about whatever they told him to do next. The group leader, a jaunty quarterback with great hair named Colton, stepped forward and said there was only one more test. Jacob had to sneak out tonight, at midnight, and go with them to the cul-de-sac on Mary Angela Road. Yeah, of course Jacob agreed, just like he agreed to the toilet shit, no pun intended. He nodded so hard his neck hurt. When the other fellows filed out of the bathroom, Jacob hung back, his stomach in knots, because he knew exactly what was at the end of Mary Angela Road, Voodoo Village. Rick stopped his story once again to assure me that this was a common thing. Everyone who'd grown up in the area knew about Voodoo Village. You were told as a kid to stay away, or the villagers would snatch you up and sacrifice you to the devil. But every kid also knew it was probably a load of crap. Probably. But that didn't mean kids didn't take precautions. You see, the first half of Mary Angela Road, with its undulating, crumpled concrete, seemed to be a lover's lane. Smoking, drinking, hanging around cars, all under a canopy of untrimmed oaks. But no one ever ventured to the road's end, to the cul-de-sac. The youth of the Memphis marshes had just enough teenage machismo to party near danger, just not enough to actually put themselves in harm's way. But Jacob's new friends had said, cul-de-sac, the actual end of the street. That's where no one was supposed to go. And as Jacob considered what lay ahead of him that night, a violent shiver ran down his spine. A shiver that had nothing to do with the toilet water-soaked shirt. After school, Jacob went home feeling ill. But he still smiled at his dad, kissed his grandma goodnight, and got into bed. He obviously didn't tell them he was sneaking out. And he definitely didn't mention he was headed down the road to Voodoo Village. The secret weighed heavy on his chest. Now he felt like an outsider in his own home, too. He set his alarm clock for 11.55. Jacob was punctual and lay back on his pillow, certain as sin he wouldn't be able to fall asleep. He started to drift off anyway, that is, till he heard this distant tinny laughter. It was coming from the window beside his bed. He leaned over to peer into the darkness below. 
The hair on his back raised up when he saw that something was moving in the shrubs down by the front door, shifting the branches frenetically. And then a tiny delicate arm reached out of the bushes, followed by a shoulder, and then a face. It was covered in pins and bore a wicked smile. It took Jacob a minute to take in its ripped up pilly flesh and realize a horrible truth about this thing. It wasn't a person, it was a rag doll. As soon as this was established, the demon toy launched itself towards the side of the house and crawled up the worn paneling as fast as it could. A loud blaring cut through the night and Jacob shot up in bed, thinking, what the fuck? His alarm clock said it was 11.55. He must have drifted off. Should have been a relief, right? But then he remembered reality was pretty bad, too. He was going to Voodoo Village. Less than five minutes later, Jacob was crammed in the backseat of an old Toyota, filled with cigarette smoke and the stench of cheap beer. He was sandwiched between Frank Gideon and Tony Roy. Colton and the team's linebacker, Kyle, were up front. No one said much. They just blasted Metallica and headbanged with the windows down. Kyle lit a cigarette. Jacob tried not to cough. That definitely wouldn't have been cool. They got to Mary Angela Road way too soon for Jacob, who would have sat in that smoke-clogged car for days if it meant avoiding Voodoo Village. Up ahead, the headlights revealed a slight bend in the lane before it filled out into a wider space where the dead ended. The car stopped before the bottleneck, but kept its headlights trained on the cul-de-sac. Jacob got out with the others. Car door slammed, and then he was handed a beer. The others cracked theirs open. Some grabbed cigarettes, and then they all leaned against the car and started talking about bullshit. Like their teachers, girls, coach, the works. A typical teenage hang. Jacob started to relax. He even sipped his beer. Maybe they were just going to chill here. Maybe this was all a ruse to really mess with Jacob's head. His mood improved quite a bit at that point. He laughed with his new buddies took gulps of his Miller Lite, life was good. But then Colton threw his can to the ground and smashed it with his foot. He nodded to the end of the road and said the words Jacob had been dreading. Time for your final test, kid. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? 
Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Jacob clutched his beer so tight the metal sides bent in. He barely heard Colton talking about Jesus. Not the Jesus some of us might know. This one's a statue, and he lived inside one of the homes in Voodoo Village. Wash Harris's house. After the village residents make a sacrifice, they do that a lot, said Colton. That's how they stay so young. Jesus' eyes glow, and the dagger rammed through his palm drips blood. Colton's instructions to Jacob were clear. Steal that dagger. Now Jacob was eager to please, but he wasn't deluded. He knew he should have run the other way. Still, he somehow found his feet moving straight towards that nest of horrors. He walked all the way to the end of the road, right up to where the concrete met grass, and peered into the woods. With the moonlight, he could see the outline of a few buildings, surrounded by other unfamiliar shapes. No sign of life. He looked behind him, too. He'd heard the old tale. The school bus that had crossed the road to trap in the mob of residents before the villagers had slaughtered them. But the only sign of a vehicle was the Toyota headlights. He could hear Kyle laugh. Jacob closed his eyes and asked whatever divine power was out there to give him the strength to do this. And with that, he stepped off the road and onto the property. A few strides later, he'd reached a colorful ramshackle fence that wrapped around a cluster of buildings. A huge red arch loomed over the other side, presumably marking the main entrance. Jacob's clammy hands pushed a broken slab aside, and he crept in. The night was deathly quiet. Jacob could only hear the sound of his own feet pattering down the dirt path that led between the homes, most of which were stark white, glowing in the night. Then there were piles of wood and metal materials lying between a series of dilapidated sculptures and towering crosses, each enclosed by their own colorful fences, sort of this mix between an artist's exhibit and a junkyard. Jacob squinted in the darkness, taking stock of things. That's when he stopped, because right in front of him was a living nightmare. His living nightmare. It was a rag doll, sitting in a glass case atop a rickety wooden stand. This one didn't have pins in it, though. It was wearing a robe, like a priest. It wasn't moving, either. Still, Jacob wasn't going to mess with it. He backed away, hurrying down a twisting path that led through a network of metal statues and signs painted with star symbols and some other freaky drawings he didn't recognize. None of them, however, were Jesus. He was sure of that. Of course not. Colton said the statue was inside Wash Harris's house, which meant he was fucked because Jacob was realizing that in order to succeed in this mission, 
he was going to have to break and enter. Reluctant as all hell, he gravitated towards the nearest building, a one-story white structure with dirt and moss creeping up its sides. Could be washes, but he had to check. He crept over to a window and stood on his tippy-toes to peer inside. A pair of eyes stared right back at him with a searing fury into his very soul. Jacob had been on edge from the moment he set foot in Voodoo Village, but still, he hadn't been ready to stare straight into the eyes of hell when he looked in that window. His shock forced him back a step, tripping over his own feet and sending him to the ground with a thud. The force of it knocked his wind out, which meant our little old Jacob was back to wheezing and gasping for air, kind of like when we met him. When he looked back at the window, the eyes were still there. They were set in the face of a very thin middle-aged woman. Her lips moved silently, mouthing something he couldn't hear. Another face appeared beside her, an older man. That's when Jacob knew he was in deep shit. These people were cursing him. He scrambled to his feet and took off, headed the way he came in. But it was pretty dark out there in the boondocks of Memphis and all of the crosses and brightly painted sculptures were so chaotically arranged, Jacob had no idea where he was. He ran blindly for a moment before he heard the footsteps. A look over his shoulder revealed a sight he did not welcome in the slightest. At least five figures streamed out of that house, stalking through the night toward him. A few held candles. The flickering light danced across their faces, causing a fresh surge of panic to rip through Jacob. They didn't look mad. They looked desperate. He should be running for his life at this point, but all he could do was stand there, frozen, thinking about how Colton got it wrong. He was saying the villagers' sacrifices to the devil kept them young, but these folks, they looked old and worn, tired. Maybe it had been a while since they'd gotten their hands on someone to sacrifice. Now... This is where Jacob got a bit lucky, because as he turned, ready to run, he saw a pile of scrap metal nearby. This pile had a crowbar sticking out of it. Kid needed a weapon in case anyone tried to cut out his heart or turn him into a voodoo doll. Jacob grabbed it and ran, but he got tired pretty fast. Remember, Jacob was a terrible athlete. Small, slow, easily exhausted, so when he passed a towering six-foot cross with a stalk big enough for him to hide behind, he curled up at its base and scrunched his eyes shut in terror. It was just in time, too. Sticks snapped around him. Villagers' cries filled the night air. He couldn't hear what they said. They all blended together like voices of the dam were calling to him, ready to grab his flesh and tear it from his bones. And then he felt a hand on his shoulder. Jacob screamed and swung the crowbar through the air. Its metal connected with the head of the person behind him. He could hear the sharp end of his weapon rip through flesh. Could feel the warm splash of blood hit his cheek. His pursuer screamed and dropped the candle he was holding to grab his eye. Bright crimson seeped through his fingers. Jacob didn't wait around. 
he rushed into a narrow alley between some mammoth machine-looking sculpture and another house, and almost fell to his death. There was a massive gaping hole in front of him. Its side were lined with boards jutting into the opening so they looked like teeth. Religious items, crosses, rosaries, wood carvings, dolls hung from them. It took up the length of the alley. Jacob would have to go back the way he came, but when he turned around, he realized that wasn't an option. That cross he'd hid behind was on fire, blocking his exit. Before he could decide what to do, shadows emerged from the flames. They'd moved towards him, their gait slow and cautious, but ever approaching. Arms reached out, voices called. They'd be on him in moments. Jacob looked at the hole. Even though his fear was absolutely searing, he felt a whole lot of shame, too. He was dead wrong to think he had the goods to join the football team or be friends with the players. He was going to be ripped apart by Hellions, and none of his supposed friends cared enough to back him up. Born an outsider, die an outsider. But as the villagers closed in on him, Jacob suddenly had a change of heart. Maybe going through all that self-pity left him some room for gumption. Or now that he'd accepted his lot, he was a lot more willing to risk it all. Because at that point, Jacob took a literal leap of faith. He stepped back a few paces, then rushed the hole. The voices behind him grew panicked. A villager screamed at him to stop, stop. But Jacob was already running. And when he hit the edge of the hole, every ounce of his strength went into the leg that was going to launch him over to the other side. But that's not what happened, though. The other side of the hole came and went, and Jacob plunged down into darkness, into the very depths of hell. When Jacob next awoke, there were only a few things he could deduce. He knew he was lying down, that his body ached beyond all recognition, that there was a warm washcloth over his eyes. But as for where he was, his guess was as good as anyone's. The cloth soon slipped off and a woman peered down at him. It was the same lady he'd seen in the window. She held a mortar and pestle and worked on pressing some grinded herbs beneath a bandage that stretched across his chest. Jacob's pulse picked up a notch then, and it ticked up even more when he strained his eyes to look past her. There were other people in the room, holding candles, a big old cross on the wall, and in the corner was that Jesus statue. He stared at Christ's face in horror, wondering if his placid expression would transform into an unholy smolder the moment these villagers killed Jacob. Our kid whimpered, waiting for someone to whip out a knife and slice him up. But then he heard a tisking sound, the kind his grandma made when he said something foul. The thin woman was shaking her head at him like she was disappointed. You're one of those, she said, a horror tourist coming to looky-loo at us because you think we're bad news. This is a place of healing, you know. Our family doesn't have time for those who think otherwise. She dipped the washcloth in a bucket of water and rang it out. Her voice turned gentle as she told him they'd called an ambulance. It'd be there soon. 
This is about when Jacob felt a fresh wave of horror wash over him because he just realized something truly destabilizing. This woman meant him no harm. Jacob strained to look at the others in the room, the older man he'd seen in the window and a few middle-aged folks. Their faces were filled with concern, including the man in the room's corner. He clutched his eye, a gaping wound where Jacob had hit him. The soft glow from the fire outside shone through the window, lighting up the room. The crosses are burning, said the woman. She looked immensely sad about that. Jacob felt sick. He swallowed down the bile that rose in his throat. The only horror there was what he'd wrought. You see, Voodoo Village wasn't what he thought it was. It wasn't evil. But you know what was? The reckless fear he'd brought with him. When Rick stopped talking, he looked real proud of himself. He'd taken me through this whole tale only to slap me with a lesson at the very end of it. That the real story of Voodoo Village wasn't about witchcraft. It was about prejudice. No one was trying to steal anyone's soul. It was just a family that others didn't understand or feared because they were different. A lot of suffering came about because of that. I paid Rick for the gas and hurried to my car. As I drove away, I made sure to head straight to the highway. I wasn't going to linger. It wasn't the villagers that scared me. It was everyone else. Run Fool is a production of Ballin Studios, Campside Media, and At Will Media. It is hosted and executive produced by me, Rodney Barnes. This episode was written by Kate Murdoch and produced by Abakar Adan. Edited by Matt Sher. It was sound designed and mixed by Kevin Seaman. Our team also includes Rosie Guerin, Will Malnati, and Matt Hickey. Creature vocalization by Terry Casburn and artwork by Jessica Clogston Kiner. Production support by Jeremy Bond and Cole Locasio. Special thanks to Mark McAdam and Seth Richardson and our operations team. Doug Slaywin, Ashley Warren, Sabina Mara, and Destiny Dingle. Executive producers at Ballin Studios are Mr. Ballin, Nick Witters, and Zach Levitt. Executive producers at At Will Media are Will Malnati and Rosie Garrett. Executive producers at Campside Media are Matt Share, Josh Dean, Vanessa Gregoriadis, and Adam Hoff. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.